we've been reading a lesser known book in the Bible called the book of Ezra. And what we saw in the last few weeks or even months is that the historical narrative in the book of Ezra is strangely analogous to the plight of the church in the post-COVID season. Because we saw in Ezra, the main storyline is the exiled Israelites are called back to return and rebuild a new temple. And so are we trying to emerge from a pandemic, a political pandemic, a racial pandemic. We are to go through all of this and we are trying to rebuild the church. Now what we learned, and if you forget everything I said, but if you could take that three points and I'm going to show you, I'm more than happy. These are the three things I want you to remember from the entire series because we are going to uh, to conclude the series today. The first thing, you had to recognize the difference between the first temple and the second temple, right? What distinguishes the second temple or rebuilt temple from the original temple? The first thing is that this temple, the new temple, is built by priests and prophets and not by kings because the first king, the first temple was done by a celebrity king. It's called the Solomon's Temple, right? Sometimes we describe certain church, churches as Pastor So-and-So's Church. That's the identity of a mega church, often known after a celebrity personality, a pastor. You know, that, that's, the, that's the way we are known. But the new temple was built by lesser-known prophets like uh, Haggai and Zechariah and uh, uh, priests like Ezra and Joshua and, uh, and a, Zeru, a guy named Zerubbabel. We don't even know who he is. Like, you know, a, a, a lot, community came together. A lesser known people became the channel of God's power uh, to build that temple. So I believe the church is going to reemerge in the post-COVID world as a community, as built by community and channeling the grace of God, not centered on the person who is standing on the pulpit. Now the second distinguishable difference of the second temple, the temple, the new temple is built for a scattered community, not for a gathered community. You remember Solomon's temple was built when the nation of Israel was at the peak of its excellence, right? It was a mighty nation. It was, in, in a way, it was a sense of national pride, that temple. Look at us, Jews. Now we have made it. Here is the temple. Here is our identity, which is good, but because they all gathered, and, you know, that was the community. But the second temple was built for a scattered community. Not all the Jews came back. You know, they ended up in diaspora, and that's where we learned the idea of synagogues came along. Synagogue is not really in the, prescribed in the Torah, but synagogues became an inevitability. So the new temple is built for scattered community. And the third thing I, uh, we saw, that in the first temple, had an altar in the outer court, 
And then in the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. You remember the outer court, then there's a holy place, then the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. The whole idea of building the temple was to house the Ark of the Covenant. But when we come to the second temple, there is no Ark of the Covenant. That was lost. So I don't know how the Holy of Holies looked like in the New Covenant, but probably empty unless they devise something else. But the point is, in the new temple, the focus is on the altar. We come to worship. But the ark, which represents the presence of God, is hidden in the neighborhood. The ark of the covenant is hidden in Pasadena, Arcadia, Glendale, Burbank, wherever that is. We don't know. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, they are still looking for writers of the, the Harrison for writers of the lost ark. We are still looking for where the ark is. Nobody knows. It is for us to find out. Actually, there was an attempt that made in the zone six of our missional community. I'll show you some pictures because Beth was inviting you to do missional community. This is the way we are going to look for the ark. Presence of God in your neighborhood, even dogs are becoming part of this, 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 this uh, exhibiting the presence of God. That's just some pictures from zone six. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the missional community is a strong movement in the next season of the church. And you can get this from outside. It will show you which zone you are in. And we are going to have, have some scattered gatherings where we live out our faith. There are three components, three discipleship rhythms. Pray together, serve together, and celebrate together. And we started with celebration. It's much easier, right? So you heard about donut tasting and all that kind of stuff happening out in the neighborhood where we invite people from our neighborhood so we live out our faith in the community because the new church, the new church is happening elsewhere. It's not centered on a building. I know it's difficult to understand. It's a paradigm shift we need to go through. So I'm going to show you that final picture which kind of uh, uh, the picture which, which kind of pictorially, I mean, obviously, visually represents what the church is. The, the first one is the old church, which is a closed community within which we have closed small groups and the other classes. So all have their own little territories, and we were still in the big in 393 North Lake Avenue address, which is that bigger circle. But now we are going to expand it. There is still a circle, but it is we are going to hold it very lightly. 393 North Lake Avenue will become a Tesla station, a charging station. You are, not here, you are not here to do church. This is the day of rest. I want you to rest here, and I want you to rest and get charged and go back and do church from Monday to Saturday. Sunday is your day of rest. Come and rest. Don't do church today. Now that is the way God is going to rebuild the church. Now, we are at the final chapter of Ezra. Can you stand with me for the reading of the word? Ezra 10, verses 1 to 3. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Shekaniah, the son of Jehiel, 
one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I know it's a tough one. <laughs> Unfortunately, the book of Ezra doesn't have a happy ending. In around 60 years, when Ezra came to the scene, and actually Ezra 1 to 6 is happening without Ezra. It's actually, he's recording the narrative he, he heard. Ezra comes from chapter 7. I told you between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there was an intermission of 60 years, which is during that period the story of Esther happens. That's all flashback. But when Ezra comes in 60 years, Israelites have... Uh, Circle back to where they were, back to square one, back to who they were. The holiness of Israelite as the nation has been lost already when Ezra came to the scene. And then what we see is then he renewed the temple and all that kind of stuff happens elsewhere. Now, the verse we read today it's a chilling episode, especially when we uh, read from a contemporary Western perspective, looking back, what's wrong with marrying a foreign woman? How dare they divorce? I mean, we, the Bible is very clear because Malachi says God hates divorce, and this doesn't make any sense to any of us, right? So, first of all, and I know this has been these particular verses and these episodes have been used to discredit, discredit intercultural marriage, interracial marriage, and because look at the, you know, marrying foreign women and all that. So, so let's, let's just step back for a minute. If you really read that scripture contextually, the problem we see in that marriage, first of all, is not cultural, it is not racial, it is really theological. What do I mean by that? So the people of the covenant married the people outside the covenant. That's what's happening there. So if you want to draw a moral equivalency to our contemporary, our, our context today, it is not talking about, say, a white person, a white Christian marrying a black Christian or an Asian Christian or whatever. It is more close to a white Christian marrying a white non-Christian. Now that's the issue there. Because they married outside the covenant, not outside the culture, not outside the race, and these concepts were not there. And I, I've articulated it very clearly in our sermon series. The problem is that they married outside their belief system. Now, for us to understand again, you know, marriage at that time in the ancient East, 
And even in some of the countries where I'm coming from, even today, marriage is not a consummation or of the public declaration of love between two individuals, which is how we understand in the West. It's a romantic expression of two individuals and they declare to the public, look at our love and here is the consummation of our love. That's what marriage is to us. But for the Asian Near East, marriage is more like a strategic alliance between two families, two tribes, and sometime between two nations. Now this is why Solomon, as you probably know, had 1,000 wives. You probably heard about that. Well, not 1,000, only 700, <laughs> 300 concubines. <laughs> now, do you think that he is some kind of, a, I don't know, some California sex addict or something like that? He has that kind of stamina? Is that what is happening there? No, because Solomon was the mighty king. He was trying to consolidate his kingdom, and the best way to do it is marrying from other kings. His wife was Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh was the king, emperor of Egypt. Instead of fighting with Egypt, he went and married his daughter. Now they, he has that kingdom. He has that support from the kingdom. So this is a strategic alliance. It is not romance. And you have to understand from that context. Now, another thing that comes with that, so what happens? So when you, when you marry outside, now another thing which is, which is again in the ancient Near East is that each land had its own gods. Gods at that time were territorial. It is commonly accepted that Israelites had their god, Hittites had their god, Edomites had their god, and the emperors didn't mess with it. People didn't mess with that concept. You know, the big king Cyrus, the Persian king Cyrus, is the one who ordered for the Israelites to go and build the temple. Is it because he was a Jew? No, he wasn't. If you really read it, chapter five or six, he actually stops building the temple too. While the emperor did that, when they went from one territory to another territory, they accepted their God. It is a pluralism of convenience. And it is not a strange custom, even if you come to my home country where I was born, there are territorial gods. That's why in Hinduism, we have 330 million gods. So you go to one area, one state, for example, they would believe in that God. And then they go to another state in the same country, they believe in that God. And it is commonly accepted that this God won't mess with that God as long as they are all pacified. So this is nothing strange for most of the world except for the, for the Western mindset Enlightened mindset, it is all strange custom, but you have to reread some of the scripture within that context. So what I'm trying to say is, the real problem in this, in this, in, in this passage is that by marrying foreign women, they are entering into a covenant with foreign gods. That's the problem. It's not because you married somebody of different skin color, it is not like you married somebody of different culture. That is not at all the problem. But you married somebody who did not have your belief system, 
which should be the core drive of the mission that you are given to. Let me read a couple of scriptures. This was already predicted. This was already forewarned by the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4. This is the scripture the Lord commanded. You shall make no covenant with the people of the land and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. That was the problem. That last sentence was the problem. It's not about having a romantic relationship with another human being of another color or another culture or even another country. The problem is, Israel, don't do it because you step into another territory, you are going to inherit that God and now your sons and daughters will follow them, those gods instead of me. That was the thing. That was the warning. And they did exactly that, Judges 3, 5 to 6. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. See what's happening? Now you know why Ezra is angry. Now you know what that, that strange mass divorce or whatever you want to call it is happening. Because the problem again is not cultural, it is not racial, it is purely theological. It is about serving God or not. It is about whether you are in the covenant or not. The problem is mixing the belief system. The moment you mix your belief system, your faith fall apart. And your, your, your drive to serve the Lord disappear. That happens in many families, in many churches, to many Christians. This is why very often when it comes to marriage, now to, to be blunt and clear, it is about a Christian marrying a non-Christian. That's the, that's the moral equivalency here, right? And quite often the, the challenge, you, 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 hear the, you hear a phrase, uh, don't be unequally yoked, right? Like you, you probably hear that. that. That actually comes from a scripture here. Um, let me read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light what, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So this is where the phrase unequally yoked with un, or yoked, being yoked with unbelievers come from. This is not specifically about marriage. Also, actually, it is a terrible, terrible metaphor to, to be used uh, uh, to use yoke yoke as a, as a metaphor for marriage. But in reality, from a biblical context, marriage, like anything else, is, is a yoke. Now, don't get panicked. And I'm not saying that this is something really bad. But I'm saying that Jesus very clearly said, Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 1130, Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Christianity begins with having a yoke. When you become a Christian, the inevitable thing is that Jesus is going to give you a yoke, whether you like it or not. 
It's like you get a yolk, you get a yolk, you get a yolk, like you know, you're Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, it's the same way you all get a yolk. Now we are called to carry and follow, follow him. And some of us are strong enough to carry by ourselves. They can be single and carry the yoke. And some of us, like me, are weak. In a way, I'm using a metaphor of Paul. Paul said it's better for you not to get married. But if you are kind of weak, you know, get married because you cannot have that yoke by yourself. So, so some of us or most of us cannot have this yoke by ourselves. So God allows you to have a partner. That is what marriage is. See, marriage is, is actually a call. God is placing on two individuals to accomplish a divine mission. And romance is a byproduct of that. See, romance will come out of that. So we are called to a mission, and God is calling us to say, hey, here, uh, here you are, here is my mission, I want, I am allowing you to take a partner, now you go this together, you pull this yoke together for the kingdom, and I am building this kingdom in this world, you remember Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, that is our mission, now you go and do it together. Now if you are unequally yoked, imagine a, a yoke placed on two oxen, and one ox pulling one direction and another yoke, another one, another one pulling another direction, what happens? We won't go anywhere. I have seen this often and often. I'm coming from a very agrarian society. And in, 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 our, in, a, in our part of India, we used to have paddy field. We used to have oxen. We used to do all of this. And if you have unequally yoked oxen, then they will only circle around. Nothing is going to happen. So the point of the story is, again, not to, not to stop from intercultural marriage or interracial marriage, but getting entangled in a romantic relationship with somebody who doesn't share your belief system. Now, what if you are already married outside the covenant? What if? You are, you are already married to a non-Christian. Now that is also, the Bible is also very clear. Let me read this. So this is not your, this is not your cue to divorce. Oh, okay, this person is unequally yoked with me, so I'm going to get out of this. No. The New Testament is very clear. The New Testament doesn't give the same commandment as Ezra or in that book we see. So this is what it says. So if you are married to a non-Christian, Stay in the marriage. That's what it says. First Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. You can go home and read. It doesn't give you any opportunity to divorce. But if a non-Christian spouse divorces you, which means that if the other person have a problem sharing your belief system or in the sense that somehow prevent you from following your faith and practicing your faith, and that person chooses to divorce you, then you are fine to marry another Christian, right? Now, again, this is, this is not a fun sermon to preach on a Sunday. So let me take a detour, right? <laughs> you know, unfortunately, that's what in the Bible. So, you know, I have to preach that. And this is the final chapter. Ezra wrote that. So I had to say this. Now, here's the, so what does this mean to all of us who are not particularly 
most of us, I hope, are not particularly suffering from married to, or, or, or what do you call the unequally yoked in our marriage or in our relationship. And you obviously know that we are all married to, if not someone, but something, right? You must, might have often heard the phrase, married, he is married to his work, right? And some of us need a divorce, actually, like in the book of Ezra. Some of us have to set our priorities. See, Jesus will never be the second in your life. Either he is first or he is last or he is not there. He will never be second to your work. He will never be second to your spouse. He will never be second to your ministry. See, that is a problem. Quite often, we have some unequally yoked marriages in our life. And I preached another sermon called Dancing with the Devil, where I explained some of, our, some of us are dancing with, the, like, you know, the five wives, uh, sorry, five husbands of Samaritan woman and how she was dancing with the devil. And I explained some of the, some of the husbands that we are all married to. So now, let, let's take a moment for us to, uh, to think, what am I married to? Am I, especially as a pastor, this can be even more dangerous. Sometimes I can, I can weigh in on, and, 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 and I can be so married to my ministry that I often forget my master. Because ministry is, is compelling. It is exciting. It is demanding. Oh, I forgot to pray. So what? I was... On Sunday, I was praying like a couple hours, kneeling there, so I can easily forget that rhythm in my own personal life. I'm just putting myself on the hot seat here, but I know this is applicable to all of you in different, different ways. What are you married to? And there is often this, we hear this, this phrase in English, the, he espoused a cause. That's what I see, especially in the younger generation now. They are all espousing a cause. Whether it is, whether it is for the poor and disenfranchised, and whether it is for the marginalized, whether the, who, who are the, for the oppressed, whether it is for the, for the planet. And these are all wonderful things. And you should keep doing that. But the problem is at what point is the espousing that cause important to you than espousing the person. You always espouse a person, not a cause. Espouse, the word spouse comes from that. You cannot marry to a cause. You can only be married to a person. There is only one person that deserves your affection. That is Jesus and Jesus alone. So who are you espousing? And I don't want this to drift us away from the main thing being the main thing. And Jesus is the main thing. And anything other than Jesus in your life, you really need a divorce. That's what the book of Ezra says. Outside the covenant, get out of my life so that I'm going to set my priorities right. What else are we espousing? It's interesting. As I began the sermon, I talked about the connection between the land and God, and God's being territorial. <laughs> Everybody had their own holy land. So this last couple of weeks, I got a lot of emails from people inside the church and outside the church asking about 
What is the church's stance on the Israel-Hamas war? And why don't we take a stand? Use your pulpit to say something about it. And so, <laughs> first of all, a war, the ethics of war is so complex that cannot be explained by some kind of clickbait links and sound bites by some preachers standing up and pontificating. And I know there is every, every, everything, there are two multiple different sides of the story. And from a Christian point, one thing is very clear, we all agree, that every life, every human life is created in the image and likeness of God. This is something I'm grappling with even now. A person who dies, whether Israelite or Palestinian or Hamas terrorist, it is equally valuable to God. I know, I know. Doesn't make any sense, but that is the theology of grace. They are all created in the image and likeness of God. No church is called to make a stance on some of this stuff. You know, there is only one thing that I can remember. Jesus was asked to address a social issue. Pilate killed a bunch of Galileans and mixed their blood with the sacrifice. That's the only social issue he was called to address. So what do you think about it? What do you think about it? Why did Pilate do it? Jesus looked at them straight in the eyes and said, I'm telling you, if you don't repent, you don't repent, you are going to die just like them. You're going to perish just like them. Jesus suddenly took the communal aspect of it and made it individual and made it spiritual and said, repent, repent. Now, as a church, all we can do is to empower Christians in the middle to live out what Christ would do naturally through them. We can all have personal opinion, actually. People actually ask me, so, okay, Pastor Matthew, I understand. What is your personal opinion on, on this issue? Okay, the church is, uh, you know, the, there are churches who say, Israel, you know, we should stand, stand for Israel. Of course we should stand for Israel. And then that we have Palestinian Christians who are struggling. Yet, of course we should be for them. That's a problem with the war. But what do you think personally? So I always say, don't ask my personal opinion. Because my personal opinion is reserved only for three people. One person I'm married to, the other two people are born of me. Right? That's why I don't use social media. Because you don't deserve my personal opinion. For that, you need to pay. You need to pay me more. <laughs> because <laughs> you're not paying me enough. To, you're paying me to preach the gospel and pastor a church, not to talk to you about Israel, Hamas, war. I can talk. I can give you my personal opinion for the right amount. But, but, <laughs> but, but today I feel generous, so I'll just give you some, some free information here. <laughs> You know, you know, at least some of you know that before becoming a pastor, I used to do something called the Mosaic Course, which is studying world religion is my, is my thing, right? Like I can speak about six major world religions in my sleep. I'm not bragging, it's true. I've written books about it, I've done spe speaking about it. See, all religions, all world religions except Christianity and to an extent, Buddhism 
has an inherent connection with the land. What do I mean by that? See, I'm coming from India, as you know. Hindus believe that India is a holy land, the whole of India. Specifically, there is a place called Varanasi, which is the holiest place on earth according to their belief. There is a river called River Ganges, and they believe that is a holy river physically. It is, you can give them Mississippi, but they will not trade you the Ganges because they physically attach that godliness to that specific area of the land. That is their holy land. Now, Hindus will come to America. Hindus are coming to America, and they are immigrating. I will tell you, they will never give you a problem claiming America as their holy land. They will never say California. We claim California as our holy land. They will not, at least theologically. They might ask you politically for, I don't know, any, any of that. What I meant is there is an inherent connection between the land and their religion. Same thing with Sikhism, like Sikh religion. There is a, little, there is a small area called Punjab. There are Gurudwaras and Sikh religious people all around the world, but their holy place is a place called Amritsar. There is a golden temple, it doesn't matter. But that area is very sacred to them. You can give them the whole world, but if you take that away from them, then they, that, that doesn't, yeah, they, they will do anything in their power to take back that land, Punjab. It's connected to that physical land. Buddhism, as I said, that's another religion that came from India. Hinduism, Sikhism, and Buddhism. Buddhism is very cultural, and we don't even know whether it's a religion, it's a philosophy, it's, it's mixed bag, because Tibetan Buddhism is very different from Japanese Buddhism, which is completely different from Western Buddhism. So I'm going to avoid that, that religion, you know, I'm going to put it in the shelf. Now coming back to two other major religions, which is Judaism, as you all know, we read the Bible. According to the Bible, God has promised them this physical piece of the property. Now, depending on how literal you read it, whether you are a, a Hebrew scholar in one way or the other, they will claim that. It doesn't matter how many state solutions you come up with, they will specifically claim that temple mount where they need to build another temple. That is part of their inheritance, they claim. But whatever we believe in, fundamentally, this is a religious issue. It doesn't matter if you, I've been reading a lot of books about it, watching a lot of documentary about it. There are many, many solutions that came up, you know, which Americans are always the ones creating these solutions. But the moment they go back, there's always fight by the religious extremists. Either Islamic extremists or the Jewish extremists, they, they, the fight again, everything fall apart. The point I'm trying to make is, as you all know, Hebrew is, or Judaism has an inherent connection between the religion and the land. Now, coming to Islam, it's a very different thing because Islam looks at the world as two different geographical territories. One is called Dar al-Islam, which is the reign of Islam where everyone submit their will to Allah, God, and surrender their lives to, to, to Islam, you know, Dar al-Islam. And the other part of the world is called Dar al-Harb, Harb, which really means the land of non-Muslims. So every physical territory in this world is marked 
in that too. So it's not just specifically not to Mecca or to a specific place. Every place can be claimed that way because without having a political power, without having a direct connection to the land, the extreme form of Islam, for example, Sharia law, cannot be practiced. This is why the land I'm coming from, India, when the British divided this, when we got independence, the Islamic fundamentals, they really, they really wanted a separate land. That's how it became India and Pakistan. For, and Muslims, for, for Islamists, I don't want to call them Muslims. Islamists, they are right. For them to practice, they need a republic state of Islam. That's why a republic of Pakistan, where they can have an Islamic practice. So they, they really need to have that continuous expansion of Dar al-Islam over Dal al-Harb. Whether you like it or not, that, that is rooted in the theological understanding. The point is, I talked to you about five religions now. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Christianity, we, which we all are, this is what Jesus said. John chapter 18, 36. I want you to take that in. John chapter 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I wish we really understood this. My kingdom is not of this world. See, we cannot pin down Christianity to a specific geographic territory. Now, you all know that I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not an official American citizen, but I'm proud of this country. I waited in line 10 years to get my green card, 10 years. I already have citizenship in two other countries. I didn't have to. I have terminal degrees in my, my job, and my wife has terminal degree in their job, and we are very qualified to go to any part of the world right now. Not bragging, it's a reality. But I love this country so much, so that we waited 10 years to get here, get to, to get citizens. So I'm proud of the ideal of America. But I need to disappoint you. America is not the holy land. America is not the holy land. India is not the holy land. Israel is the holy land for Jews. It can be considered as the holy land for us too, but if you read this Bible in plain English, which it is, Jesus didn't speak plain English, but I looked at different version. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And I want us to really think about it. Like I said, I did not give you my personal opinion. I gave you some facts out of which you can make your own personal opinions. Our church has only one stance, which I said in the first Sunday when I came here. We preach Christ crucified. This is not a platform. This is, this is an altar in which a sacrifice will be offered, blood will flow. And the Savior said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, that is no escapism. We are working on something. Now, I'm going to call you for a special prayer, especially for what is happening in the land of Gaza.
Like I said, as Christians, every soul lost is a soul lost in the image and likeness of God. As Christians, it is our job to empower the church in Gaza. That's what we should do. When people ask me to pray for some countries like Syria or countries like India, it doesn't matter. I always pray for the church in that country. I don't know what to pray for some people in India and the prime minister of India. He doesn't even believe in God and he doesn't believe in what my worldview. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to pray for him. Like, yeah, yeah, I pray for India. No, I pray for the church in India so that they will stand up, leave out their gospel so that the people will be attracted to them. The same way we, when we say we pray for Israel or pray for Gaza, we pray for the church in Gaza. Our job is to empower the church in Gaza. They know the right opinion. They have the right opinion. They have the right perspective. They deserve their whatever they are doing because they went through the pain and the agony and the angst of it. So let us empower the church of Gaza. So I'm going to call you for a prayer. We are going to do a prayer right now because we talked about the inherent connection between the land and God and the Holy Land and all that kind of stuff. But you also have another just important as the prayer is opportunity. We are taking a special offering until the 30th of November. That is just about two to three weeks. A special offering that will go to the church in Gaza. Now we have a missionary, or we call them our international staff, placed in Gaza. Isn't that wonderful? It's not an organization, a person. I would have liked to give you, give you his name. You, most of you know his name, but I don't know. At this situation, it is not that great because I talked to him. I was in a, in a Zoom call. Uh, I was listening in on a Zoom call, and I received some of the update letter. He was just outside Gaza. You know, he's not in Gaza, but his aunt got killed, and, and he said they did church last Sunday or Sunday before last. There were 40 people attended some of them through Zoom, right in the middle of all these calamities, they are gathering together, and, and there's a church happening in Gaza as we speak. And there is a Christian library right next to the police station, the Israelis, the Israelis bombed. And I saw the picture actually when the camera zoomed in. And thankfully it didn't get affected, it had broken windows and structures and stuff. The police station was bombed, it was right next to the police station, there's a Christian library in Gaza, and they say they have all the Bible verses put in Arabic, there are Muslims come there, and they read books, and they ask about Jesus, that's a way of evangelism. So there are a lot of amazing things that is happening in Gaza, even in the middle of this warfare, and it is our responsibility to support them, to empower them, not to come with some political stance, not to come with pontificating doctrines, which is all important, and you can do it in your own free time. As long as you don't ask my personal opinion, I am fine. Be yourself, that's great. But as a church, we are going to commit our resources and our prayers to the church in Gaza. So I'm going to invite you, not right now, but in the coming weeks, you can write your check and donations marked specifically to Gaza Relief, and it will go straight to the field. It is not even going through an organization. It is our missionary in Gaza. We have direct connection to the war zone as we speak. 
What a privilege to pastor a church like that. That's the, that's the legacy of our missions department. So we have a connection, so make sure that you donate specifically to Gaza. Let's close in prayer. Father God, sometimes we wonder if we could put a full stop into everything that is happening in the world so that your kingdom will come with all its might and glory. But that is our frail understanding of power and glory. <laughs> we know that you can make it happen even in the cross. The other people said, if you're truly the son of God, you could ask the angels to come and rescue you. You could have done that, but you chose to be a suffering God in a suffering world. Lord, as, we, as Christians, we surrender ourselves to be that suffering saviors in a way, or suffering partners in a suffering world. And we are grateful that we are in a beautiful country like America where we have complete religious freedom, which was also bought with price that is praised, paid. As we had in our Veterans Day breakfast yesterday, as we celebrate the veterans today, and we know that none of it came easy. Blood was always shed. So what is happening in Gaza? Right now, Lord, all we can do is to be on your shoulders and on their shoulders crying with them and support them. So we surrender our resources, our time, our prayers, all of that directing to that one specific piece of land in this world. Allow us to be part of this redemption process, the kingdom building process you are bringing into this world. Lord, you will always be the first in our life. We will never be married to our work. We will never be married to a land. We will never be married to a philosophy, but you will, and you alone, will be the first and foremost in our life. Come, rebuild our church. In Jesus' name, amen.